Chapter 7 of Murder in the Gunroom. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Murder in the Gunroom by H. Beam Piper. Chapter 7. When Walters entered, Rand had his pipe lit and was walking slowly around the room, laying out the work ahead of him. Roughly, the earliest pieces were on the extreme left, on the short north wall of the room, and the most recent ones on the right, at the south end. This was, of course, only relatively true. The pistols seemed to have been classified by a type in vertical rows, and chronologically from top to bottom in each row. The collection seemed to consist of a number of intensely specialized small groups, with a large number of pistols of general types added. For instance, about midway on the long east wall, there were some thirty-odd all-metal pistols, from the wheel lock to the percussion. There was a collection of U.S. Marshals, with two rows of the regulation pistols, flintlock and percussion, of foreign governments placed on the left, and the collection of Colts on the right. After them came the other types of percussion revolvers, and the latter metallic cartridge types. It was an arrangement which made sense from the armed student's point of view, and Rand decided that it would make sense to the dealers and museums to whom he intended sending lists. He would save time by listing them as they were hung on the walls. Then there were the cases between the windows on the west wall containing the ammunition collection, examples of every type of fixed pistol ammunition, and the collection of bullet molds and powder flasks and wheel lock spanners and assorted cleaning and loading accessories. All that stuff would have to be listed, too. I beg your pardon, sir, Walters broke in behind him. Mrs. Fleming said that you wanted me. Oh, yes, Rand turned. Is this the whole thing, what's on the walls here? Yes, sir. There is also a wall case containing a number of modern pistols and revolvers and several rifles and shotguns in the room formerly occupied by Mr. Fleming, but they are not part of the collection, and they are now the personal property of Mrs. Fleming. I understand that she intends selling at least some of them on her own account. Then there is a quantity of ammunition and ammunition components in that closet under the workbench cartridges, primed cartridge shells, black and smokeless powder, cartridge primers, percussion caps. But they are not part of the collection, either. I believe Mrs. Fleming wants to sell most of that, too. Well, I'll talk to her about it. I may want to buy some of the ammunition for myself, Rand said. So I only need to bother with what's on the walls in this room? By the way, did Mr. Fleming keep any sort of record of his collection? A book, or a card index, or anything like that? Why, no, sir. Walters was positive. Then he hedged. If he did, I never saw or heard anything of this sort. Mr. Fleming knew everything in this room. I have seen him downstairs when somebody would ask him about something, close his eyes as though trying to visualize, and then give a perfect description of any pistol in the collection. Or else he could enumerate all the pistols of a certain type say all the Philadelphia Derringers, or all the Allen Pepper Boxes, or all the Rimfire Smith & Wesson tip-back types. He had a remarkable memory for his pistols, although it was not out of the ordinary otherwise, sir. Rand nodded. Any collector, at least any collector who was a serious arms student, could do that, particularly if he were a good visualizer and kept his stuff in some systematic order. At the moment, he could have named and described any or all of his own modest collection of two-hundred-odd pistols and revolvers. I was hoping he'd kept a record, he said. 
A great many collectors do, and it would have helped me quite a bit. He made up his mind to compile such a record himself when he got back to New Belfast. It would be a big help to Carter Tipton when it came time to settle his own estate, and a man on whom the Reaper has scored as many near misses as on Jeff Rand should begin to think of such things. And how about writing materials? And is there a typewriter available? There was. A cased portable was on the floor beside the workbench. Walter showed him which desk drawers contained paper and other things. There was, Rand noticed, a loaded thirty-eight Colt Detective Special in the upper right-hand desk drawer. And these phones, the butler continued, indicating them. This one is a private outside line. It doesn't connect with any other in the house. The other is an extension. It has a buzzer. The outside phones has a regular bell. Rand thanked him for the information. Then, picking up a notepad and pencil, he started on the left of the collection, meaning to make a general list and rough approximation of value for use in talking to Gresham's friends that evening. Tomorrow he would begin on the detailed list for use in soliciting outside offers. Twenty-five wheel locks, four heavy South German dags, two singles and a pair, three Saxon pistols with sharply dropped grips, a pair and one single, five French and Italian sixteenth-century pistols, a pair of small pocket or sash pistols, a pair of French petronels, and an extremely long seventeenth-century Dutch pistol with an ivory-covered stock and a carved ivory venus head for a pommel, eight seventeenth-century French, Italian, and Flemish pistols. Rand noted them down and was about to pass on, then he looked sharply at one of them. It was nothing out of the ordinary as wheel locks go, a long Flemish weapon of about 1640, the type used by the Royalist cavalry in the English Civil War. There were two others almost like it, but this one was in simply appalling condition. The metal was rough with rust, and apparently no attempt had been made to clean it in a couple of centuries. There was a piece cracked out of the forend. The ramrod was missing, as was the front ramrod thimble. Both the trigger guard and the butt cap were loose, and when Rand touched the wheel it revolved freely if sluggishly, betraying a broken spring or chain. The vertical row next to it seemed to be all snap-haunces, but among them Rand saw a pair of Turkish flintlocks. Not even good Turkish flintlocks, a pair of the sort of weapons hastily thrown together by native craftsmen or imported ready-made from Belgium for bazaar sale to gullible tourists. Among the fine examples of seventeenth-century Brescian gun-making above and below it, these things looked like a pair of dog-patchers in the Waldorf starlight room. Rand contemplated them with distaste, then shrugged. After all, they might have had some sentimental significance, say souvenirs of a pleasantly remembered trip to the Levant. A few rows farther on, among some exceptionally fine flintlocks, all of which predated 1700, he saw one of those big Belgian Navy pistols, circa 1800, of the sort once advertised far and wide by a certain old army goods dealer for $6.95. This was a particularly repulsive specimen of its breed. Grimy with hardened dust and gummed oil, maculated with yellow surface rust, the brasswork green with corrosion. It was impossible to shrug off a thing like that. From then on, Rand kept his eyes open for similar incongruities. They weren't hard to find. There was a big army pistol of Central European origin and in abominable condition, 
among a row of fine multi-shot flintlocks. Multi-shot. Stephen Gresham had mentioned an Elisha Collier flintlock revolver. It wasn't there. It should be hanging about where this post-Napoleonic German thing was. There was no Hallbridge loader, either, but there was a dilapidated old Ketland. There were many such interlopers among the U.S. Marshals. An English ounce-ball cavalry pistol, a French 1777 and a French 1773, a couple more 695 bargain-counter specials, a miserable altered S. North 1816. Among the Colts there was some awful junk, including a big Spanish hinge-frame 44 and a Belgian imitation of a Webley RIC model. There weren't as many Patterson Colts as Gresham had spoken of, and the Whitneyville Walker was absent. It went on like that. About a dozen of the best pistols which Rand remembered having seen from two years ago were gone, and he spotted at least twenty items which the late Lane Fleming wouldn't have hung in his backyard privy if he'd had one. Well, that was to be expected. The way these pistols were arranged, the absence of one from its hooks would have been instantly obvious. So, as the good stuff had moved out, these disreputable changelings had moved in. "'You had rather a shocking experience here in Mr. Fleming's death,' Rand said over his shoulders to the butler. "'Oh, yes, indeed, sir.' Walter seemed relieved that Rand had broken the silence. "'A great loss to all of us, sir, and so unexpected.' He didn't seem adverse to talking about it, and went on at some length. His story closely paralleled that of Gladys Fleming. Mr. Varsick called the doctor immediately, he said. Then Mr. Dunmore pointed out that the doctor would be obliged to notify either the coroner or the police, so he called Mr. Good, the family solicitor. That was about twenty minutes after the shot. Mr. Good arrived directly. He was here in about ten minutes. I must say, sir, I was glad to see him. To tell the truth, I had been afraid that the authorities might claim that Mr. Fleming had shot himself deliberately. Somebody else doesn't like the smell of that accident, Rand thought. Aloud, he said, Mr. Good lives nearby then, I take it? Oh, yes, sir. You can see his house from these windows over here, sir. Rand looked out the window. The rain-soaked lawn of the Fleming residence ended about a hundred yards to the west. Beyond it, an orchard was beginning to break into leaf, and beyond the orchard and another lawn stood a half-timbered Tudor-style house, somewhat smaller than the Fleming place. A path led down from it to the orchard, and another led from the orchard to the rear of the house from which Rand looked. "'Must be comforting to know your lawyer so handy,' he commented. "'And what do you think, Walters? Are you satisfied in your own mind that Mr. Fleming was killed accidentally?' The servant looked at him seriously. "'No, sir, I'm not,' he replied. "'I've thought about it a great deal since it happened, sir, and I just can't believe that Mr. Fleming would have that revolver and start working on it without knowing that it was loaded. That just isn't possible, if you'll pardon me, sir. And I can't understand how he would have shot himself while removing the charges. The fact is, when I came up here at quarter of seven to call him for cocktails, he had the whole thing apart and spread out in front of him. The butler thought for a moment. I believe Mr. Dunmore had something like that in mind when he called Mr. Good. Well, what happened? Rand asked. Did the coroner or the doctor choke on calling it an accident? Oh, no, sir, there was no trouble of any sort about that. You see, Dr. Yardman called the coroner as soon as he arrived, but Mr. Good was here already. 
He come over by that path you saw to the rear of the house, and in through the garage, which was open since Mrs. Dunmore was out, with the coop. They all talked it over for a while, and the coroner decided that there would be no need for any inquest, and the doctor wrote out the certificate. That was all there was to it. Rand looked at the section of pistol rack devoted to Colts. Which one was it? he asked. Oh, it's not here, sir, Walters replied. The coroner took it away with him. And hasn't returned it yet? Well, he has no business keeping it. It's part of the collection and belongs to the estate. Yes, sir, if I may say so, I thought it was a bit high-handed of him taking it away myself, but it wasn't my place to say anything about it. Well, I'll make it mine. If that revolver's what I'm told it is, it's too valuable to let some damned country-seat politician walk off with. A thought occurred to him. And if I find that he's disposed of it, this county's going to need a new coroner, at least till the present incumbent gets out of jail. The buzzer of the extension phone went off like an annoyed rattlesnake. Walter scooped it up, spoke into it, listened for a moment, and handed it to Rand. For you, sir, Mrs. Fleming. Colonel Rand, Carl Gwinnett, the commission dealer I told you about, is here, Gladys told him. Do you want to talk to him? Why, yes. Do I understand now that you and the other ladies want cash and don't want the collection peddled off piecemeal? All right, send him up. I'll talk to him. A few minutes later, a short, compact-looking man of forty-odd entered the gunroom, shifting a briefcase to his left hand and extending his right. Rand advanced to meet him and shook hands with him. You're Colonel Rand? Enjoyed your articles in the Rifleman, he said. Mrs. Fleming tells me you're handling the sale of the collection for the estate. That's right, Mr. Gwinnett. Mrs. Fleming tells me you're interested. Yes. Originally, I offered to sell the collection for her on a commission basis, but she didn't seem to care for the idea, and neither do the other ladies. They all want spot cash and a lump sum. Yes. Mrs. Fleming herself might have been interested in your proposition if she'd been sole owner. You could probably get more for the collection, even after deducting your commission, than I'll be able to, but the collection belongs to the estate and has to be sold before any division can be made. Yes, I see that. Well, how much would the estate, or you, consider a reasonable offer? Sit down, Mr. Gwinnett, Rand invited. What would you consider a reasonable offer yourself? We're not asking any specific price, we're just taking bids, as it were. Well, how much have you been offered to date? Well, we haven't heard from everybody. In fact, we haven't put out a list, or solicited offers, except locally as yet. But one gentleman has expressed a willingness to pay up to $25,000. Gwinnett's face expressed polite skepticism. Colonel Rand, he protested, you certainly don't take an offer like that seriously. I think it was made seriously, Rand replied. A respectable profit could be made on the collection, even at that price. Gwinnett's eyes shifted over the rows of horizontal barrels on the walls. He was almost visibly wrestling with mental arithmetic, and at the same time trying to keep any hint of his notion of the collection's real value out of his face. Well, I doubt if I could raise that much, he said. Might I ask who's making this offer? You might. I'm afraid I couldn't tell you. You wouldn't want me to publish your own offer broadcast, would you? I think I can guess. If I'm right, don't hold your head in a tub of water till you get it. 
Gwynnett advised. Making a big offer to scare away competition is one thing, and paying off on it is another. I've seen that happen before, you know. Fact is, there's one dealer not far from here who makes a regular habit of it. He'll make some fantastic offer, and then, when everybody's been bluffed out, he'll start making objections and finding faults, and before long he'll be down to about a quarter of his original price. The practice isn't unknown, Rand admitted. I'll bet you don't have this $25,000 offer on paper over a signature, Gwynnett pursued. Well, here. He opened his briefcase and extracted a sheet of paper, handing it to Rand. You can file this. I'll stand back of it. Rand looked at the typed and signed statement to the effect that Carl Gwynnett agreed to pay the sum of $15,000 for the Lane Fleming pistol collection, in its entirety, within 30 days of date. That was an average of $6 a pistol. There had been a time, not too long ago, when a pistol collection with an average value of $6, particularly one as large as the Fleming collection, had been something unusual. For one thing, arms values had increased sharply in the meantime. For another, Lane Fleming had kept his collection clean of the $2 items, which dragged down so many collectors' average values. Except for the two dozen odd mysterious interlopers, there wasn't a pistol in the Fleming collection that wasn't worth at least $20, and quite a few had values expressible in three figures. Well, your offer is duly received and filed, Mr. Gwinnett, Rand told him, folding the sheet and putting it in his pocket. This is better than an unwitnessed verbal statement that somebody is willing to pay 25000 I'll certainly bear you in mind. You can show that to Arnold Rivers if you want to, Gwinnett said. See how much he's willing to commit himself to, over his signature. End of Chapter 7